We're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, just so you know, apparently the elevators are out, and so there may be some people coming in late, but that's probably why. So we'll, um, we'll get started. So welcome to Oral Abstract Presentation number eight, the last one for the day, exploring research on diet and consumer perceptions. My name is Pamela Bradford. I'm from the University of Florida, and I also serve as the Secretary and Treasurer of the FNEE Division. So today we have four presentations. The first will be a novel method, method for estimating state-grown edible portion fruit and vegetable servings using agricultural census data, presented by Jeb Bastian. Then we'll follow that with eating beliefs, perceived stress, and added sugar intake in young adult cancer survivors, a mediation analysis by Acadia Bureau. Then increasing legume consumption to promote health and sustainability, Israeli dietitians barriers to counseling clients by Aliza Stark. And then consumer protections of the healthfulness of ultra-processed food products, a cross-sectional study in Vermont by Mick Rose. We'll get started with our first presenter. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, can I get my slides up on the screen? Oh, hey, look at that, all right. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for making it down, um, even with the elevators down. So I don't know if any of you took the stairs, and hopefully no one has to run back up to the room right away. <laughs> but thank you for being here uh, today. So my name is Jeb Bastian. Um, I'm an assistant professor and extension specialist at South Dakota State University. Today I'm going to be talking about um, what I'm calling a novel method for estimating state-grown edible portion fruit and vegetable servings using agricultural census data. And this is just kind of um, a bit of a rabbit hole that I fell down as I started at SDSU and uh, um, kind of tried to determine a way to solve a, a pressing issue for our state and having some pretty interesting results which I'll go through as well. So getting right into it, the local food economy is a pretty big uh, business in the U.S. It's uh, In 2017, it was almost a $12 billion industry, and that is only growing. Um, as you can see here, uh, there are a bunch of different uh, types of uh, participators in this local food economy. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we think of local food and we might think of just farmers markets or other types of, of real local uh, direct-to-consumer sales. Um, but with that, there are other avenues that um, also use local food. So institutions and intermediate markets actually account for almost 40% of all local food sales. Um, so it's not just going directly to consumers, it's going to institutions as well. Um, of direct-to-consumer local food sales, almost half were actually on on-site farm stores and farm stands. So there's actually a significant amount that is not happening at the farmer's market. There's a lot of different ways that um, local food is being um, done in the U.S. Um, there are a lot of reasons why local food is important, and I think a lot of us at SNB already know that. And as we saw during COVID-19, local food systems actually um, can be more resilient than national or global supply chains. Um, so as we all witnessed during the pandemic, there were all sorts of shortages due to these uh, supply chain issues, as we all know. Um, and whereas we saw that local foods um, in farmers markets and other avenues for local foods were actually sometimes the safest place to get your groceries during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Local food is also of interest to our nutrition programs, our nutrition uh, policies in the United States, as well as our local food economy are both managed by the same department. And so USDA has a lot of nutrition programs that also connect to local food. So some of those are farm to school, the farmer's market nutrition program with WIC. Um, there's an increase in SNAP incentive programs, as well as per produce prescription programs that utilize farmer's markets and CSA, most recently through the Gus Shoemaker nutrition incentive program and then even more recently within the past couple of years there's the local food purchase assistance cooperative agreement program that allows for um, emergency food sites such as food banks and food pantries to purchase local foods to um, use in their institutions so looking at my state, South Dakota, we are trying to build our capacity to better support local food systems. And we have a lot of people doing really fantastic work to try to support the local food system in our relatively small state. We have fewer than a, th uh, fewer than a million people in the entire state. Um, so we have the Local Foods Coalition, which is a, a group of people in, in academia and uh, nonprofit, farmers, growers, uh, other advocates who are interested in in supporting local foods. And then we have a lot of initiatives through our land-grant university, South Dakota State. Um, so we have a farm-to-school resource guide for people interested in implementing farm-to-school, as well as a local foods education center, among other initiatives. And so we have a lot of people on the ground trying to bolster this. However, the reality of South Dakota is that it's actually one of the poorest performing states for horticulture. So we are a big ag state when it comes to commodity crops, row crops, uh, ranching, um, dairy, all other sorts of stuff. But when we are looking at vegetables, we are 49th out of the 50 states for vegetable sales. Um, we are just coming up uh, above Wyoming. Um, and we are 46th of the 50 states for uh, fruit sales. And so, we're generally not a big state when it comes to promoting a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables um, through our local food system. However, we don't know exactly how to quantify how much fruits and vegetables that we're growing for some of these nutrition programs that we want to support. Um, to determine what our actual capacity is for feeding people with local produce in our state, we need the data. But that ag data is usually measured either in acreage how many acres are you growing, or the revenue, how much money you're making. And so we needed to find a way to actually figure out how much is being grown for people to eat um, after it is out of the ground, harvested, processed, distributed, and brought to consumers either through retail or institutions. So this project was done really to gather this capacity for farm to school, but it's really gathering this for any type of local food. And the aim is to develop a method to estimate the number of particularly edible portions of fruits and vegetables grown in South Dakota. So how much of it after it's all ready to, to go is actually edible and, and able to be consumed. So for this method, um, what we already had access to was data from uh, the United States Department of Agriculture National Agricultural Statistics Service. And so uh, they collect a lot of agricultural data, and particularly we were using the acreage harvested um, for each of these horticultural crops that was um, provided through the Census of Agriculture. So this is done every five years where they try to uh, have as representative of a sample as they can of all uh, farms in America that have 
at least a thousand dollars in revenue and they try to determine all this information on them um, the 2022 data wasn't available yet so we used the 2017 which was the most recent census and so in order to figure out what we wanted to know, which was cups of edible produce, um, we had to find a few other uh, statistics to kind of uh, make our estimate. So the first one that we needed was yield. So if we know how many acres we have, we need to know how much produce we get per acre. And obviously that's going to differ for each uh, fruit and vegetable. Um, so we were able to find yield, yield statistics from the census itself. However, we weren't able to get state-specific estimates because they're done at a national estimate level. Um, and the national estimates are usually used by the states that do produce a lot of fruits and vegetables, um, which, as I've already mentioned, South Dakota isn't one of them. Um, so we did use the national estimates for yields um, for the different crops. Um, and when those weren't available, we did use some uh, references from Cooperative Extension Services. And then from there, we had to then figure out what was the actual edible portion of that. So, you know, when a ear of sweet corn is grown out of the ground, it weighs a certain amount, but then once you shuck, you know, the, the thing off of it, then you have the actual edible portion that weighs a different amount, and then that's transferred into cups. And so we're scouring the internet. How do, how do we figure out how to take you know, uh, uh, all of this? Where are the conversions? And it turns out that USDA Food and Nutrition Service actually has food buying guides where they laid this out super conveniently for uh, school food service directors, but allows you to say if you have this, uh, a pound of, of this fresh produce, this is how many cups it makes of different you know, types of, of uh uh, different dishes that you can serve for school food programs. And so we, you know, in order to make this a, a simple estimate, we chose um, the form of the food that we thought was most convenient. So like, for example, for apples, we decided that, you know, like cut up apples would be our end product as opposed to say applesauce. They're probably less likely to make applesauce from local fresh apples. And so from there, we did some really complicated math multiplication and so <laughs> so we multiplied the acres by the yield by the by the conversion and that gave us the number of cups of edible produce for our estimate so i now know you're all at the edge of your seats waiting for these results unfortunately they are not too great um so looking at these rough estimates um we see that there were almost 10 million cups of fruits grown in south dakota in 2017 and 487 million cups of vegetables grown in 2017. Um, when you divide that by the number of people who lived in south dakota at the time which i think was 860,000 people yeah we're the fifth most rural state um it turns out that we had 11.4 cups of fruits per capita and 557.8 cups of veggies per capita. When divided by day, that means we have 0.03 cups of fruits per South Dakotan per day and 1.53 cups of vegetables per South Dakotan per day. Obviously not the fantastic results that I wanted to share at SNAB with all of you today, but that's the reality of the scientific method. But wait, there's more. Uh, as we looked into it, there are a few limitations to this method that compromised the estimate even further. Um, so some of the things that we found while we were doing this. Um, so those vegetables were not as bad as the um, 
uh, as the fruits, but it turns out that 93% of the vegetables that we do grow in South Dakota are actually legumes. So we're a big dry bean, chickpea, lentil state. And so when you look at the other categories of vegetables, it's just as bad as the fruits are. Um, certain crops are only used for um, other purposes other than school feeding programs or you know direct to consumer so all those grapes that we saw in our estimates those are in reality being turned into wine um, again I talked about the national estimates um, South Dakota also has a short growing season we mostly harvest most of our fruits and vegetables from July to September um, and so you know when you think about it from that angle we're, we're even more limited during the winter months and then of course, this yield method accounts for food loss that's done at the farm, but it doesn't account for food waste that, as we all know, happens in, in settings such as uh, school. So implications for future work, we just need more data on uh, specific yield data would allow us to get more specific estimates. And we need more crosstalk between ag data and nutrition data. And we need more policy work to incentivize, you know, uh, you know, more horticultural activities so we can support a more resilient local food system in our state. So with that, I just wanna give a few very quick acknowledgements. First of all, to Bridget Benia, she's my graduate assistant on this project. She did a lot of the work with the analysis. Um, Dr. Sorota Burroughs and Christine Lang are horticulture specialists. They helped us with a lot of the questions that we had on this. Anna Tavit is our farm to school field specialist who helped me with this. Laura Kaler from Specialty Producers and our farm to school network was super helpful as well. So with that, thank you for your time and thank you. Do we want to do questions now or at the end? All right, who has questions? Was this just local? Would it be only locally produced or locally produced? Well, see, that's the other thing. We just wanted to see the capacity. Do we even grow enough? And so, yeah, that's the other part of the question, right? Where does this go? Um, so we're not in South Dakota growing at the capacity where we're really shipping any of this out other than probably the legumes. So the Dakotas are kind of the bean basket of the US. And so a lot of that is being shipped outside. But um, we just wanted to see what the capacity was to even support a local food system. But that would be the next step is figuring out where are these going once they're grown and, and processed and, and determined and that data is just not collected. Yes. That would be, luckily the, the historical data does exist. We just haven't plugged it into our kind of formula. So we have an Excel spreadsheet. So the nice thing is we can plug in the numbers and kind of do a historical analysis and see how this has changed over time. And you know, hopefully we'll get the 2022 census results uh, very soon and we can, we can see how it's changed over the past five years. Yes, over here? Or no, so just uh, just looking at this, this is just uh, looking at what was grown in South Dakota to determine the capacity of our own state agricultural system to do that. Um, the thing about our state is that um, our two biggest cities are on two ends of the state and their actual, their metropolitan statistical areas actually cover neighboring states so like i live in sioux falls and so our local food technically like at our farmer's market like a lot of our producers actually come from western minnesota and so that is just kind of another 
uh, complicator in, in this type of analysis. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a, a little bit difficult to, um, at least in terms of US, we just don't track like how much of this is going from state to state. I do believe that FAO does track a little bit more of import exports at the country level. And so I think there are some analysis of, of you know, how this is, uh, you know, what's coming in and out at the country level. Um, but I really wanted to get at the state level because as we think of local food systems, we want to get more hyper, hyper local. And unfortunately, um, most of the states just don't have the capacity to really determine, you know, how much of a local food system they could support. Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's another thing that it was. Um, uh, so a lot of this data is in aggregate. And so um, I don't know exactly the hurdles that I would have to go through to get like more specific data from NAS. I'm sure it exists. But um, yeah, it's just that's part of the challenge. Um, but yeah, one of the things is that the farm had to have at least a thousand dollars in revenue. So this isn't counting, you know, gardening and, and other very small um, operations that are happening, you know, they do have to have that certain amount in order to, to qualify for the census at all. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. And I'm more than happy to, you know, talk outside of this and I have my business cards here too. So happy to chat. Thank you. I'm going to change gears a lot here. Um, I'm presenting on eating beliefs, perceived stress, and added sugar intake in young adult cancer survivors, a mediation analysis. My name is Acadia Bureau, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico, um, but I conducted this work as a postdoctoral fellow at Moffitt Cancer Center. This work was funded by the T32 training grant that I was on, as well as an internal grant at Moffitt through their adolescent and young adult AYA program. Young adult cancer survivors age 18 to 39 have an increased risk of obesity-related chronic diseases, including diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And despite multidisciplinary recommendations for weekly physical activity levels and healthy dietary patterns, they do tend to exhibit um, low physical activity levels and poor adherence to those guidelines. Moreover, they face a variety of age-dependent transitions and stressors, including but not limited to financial concerns, independent living challenges, strained relationships. Many young adult cancer survivors have to experience the transition from cancer patient to cancer survivor while also transitioning to young adulthood. And so, of course, we know that stress may impact 
uh, ability to engage in healthy lifestyle behaviors in the general population, but there's a lack of research looking at this specifically in this unique um, population. And of course, we know as well that social determinants of health, health can impact these stressors, which can then impact healthy lifestyle behaviors. So just for example, built environment, of course, may include access to nutrient-dense foods, walkable spaces, economic stability may include food security. So therefore, the theoretical framework for this exploratory pilot study that I'm talking about is informed by the social determinants of health related to stressors on the far left, um, Lazarus and Folkman's transactional model of stress and coping, and Barrington and colleagues' biobehavioral model of perceived stress and obesity. So the exploratory pilot study here is focused on these highlighted parts of the framework. The pilot study um, had two main aims. The first aim was to look at whether perceived stress was um, associated with some dietary behaviors and physical activity. And then the second aim was a qualitative aim, examining perceived needs related to stress, diet, and physical activity. But what I want to focus on here is actually this exploratory aim, looking at whether there are mediated effects of perceived stress in the association between eating beliefs and added sugar intake in our sample age 18 to 39. Um, and so the measures um, that were completed by our participants um, was a battery of self-report validated measures, screener-style questionnaires, the perceived stress, stress scale 10, promise anxiety and depression scales, the eating beliefs questionnaire, and this EBQ looks at eating beliefs that may be linked to binge eating or um, other altered food behaviors, so these are more negative eating beliefs, the NHANES 30-item dietary screener questionnaire, the Godin Shepherd Leisure Time Physical Activity Questionnaire, and Demographic and Clinical History Questions. Participants were recruited through Moffitt's AYA program listserv via email, and data were collected online through REDCap. Preliminary analyses included descriptive statistics, correlations, multiple linear regression, and then we had our single mediator model with perceived stress as the mediator um, and assessed significance with a Sobel test. So this is the conceptual framework for the mediation analysis that was conducted. Again, eating beliefs being those more uh, negative eating beliefs that um, may be linked with binge eating. So there were 225 survey participants. The mean age was 31. Most were women, heterosexual, white, had at least a college degree. Uh, most common cancer types were lymphoma, breast, thyroid, and leukemia. They were mean five years post-diagnosis and four years post-treatment. Uh, I'm not going to get into any of the qualitative results in this presentation, but I'll just briefly highlight key AIM-1 findings um, since it relates to the mediation analysis. So perceived stress, anxiety, and depression were associated with increased added sugar intake and eating beliefs, again, being those negative eating beliefs. Perceived stress and depression were associated with reduced vegetable intake, and these were in the adjusted models. So in the adjusted models, um, none of the three mental health variables were associated with physical activity, but we did see that physical activity was correlated with perceived stress and anxiety. And so these AIM-1 findings are um, published in Nutrients if you're interested. And so the results of the mediation analysis um, indicated that the direct effect of eating beliefs on perceived stress, eating beliefs on added sugar intake, and perceived stress on added sugar intake were all significant. And the indirect effect of eating beliefs on added sugar via perceived stress as a mediator was also significant. 
So this means that the association between eating beliefs and added sugar intake was partially mediated by perceived stress. So this gives us some insight into the direction of the associations that we saw in our AIM-1 findings, which allows us to um, refine the theoretical framework that I showed you at the beginning, um, kind of just fine-tuning those arrows that we had in the framework. And so, in conclusion, this um, exploratory pilot study does highlight that health behavior interventions for this population, and especially nutrition interventions, given that we did see um, significant findings in the adjusted models for several of our variables, um, may address psychosocial needs of this unique population by including a stress management, mindful eating, or other mind-body component um, when also uh, addressing these behavioral um, outcomes. But of course, further research, including direct measures, is warranted. As I me mentioned, um, we used validated measures, but these were more screener-style questionnaires. Um, but there, there are some, I think, important and promising findings here, uh, and this is a high-need, um, understudied population. So lastly, I just want to acknowledge my postdoctoral mentors, Dr. Marilyn Stern and Dr. Tiffany Carson, the Moffitt AYA program, of course, the participants who contributed their time. Um, and Insights, and Moffitt Cancer Center, and like I mentioned, I'm at the University of New Mexico now. Thanks for listening, and let me know if you have any questions. Yes. We use the perceived stress scale 10, the PSS 10. <laughs> Sorry, I was didn't see. Did, did you take uh, uh, any measurements from the, uh, the time of the day for the night? No, that, that's a, a really great point. So this was just kind of a first step exploratory pilot study, um, you know, cross-sectional. They just completed the, the survey whenever, and we didn't take into account um, any of that. So in the future, if we are looking at, you know, any objective measures, um, we probably will incorporate, you know, time of day or... Um, maybe use other methods and look at multiple times throughout the day, but for this study it was just one time point and we didn't track, um, you know, anything about what was going on or anything like that. Great question. Yes. Any information about how this compares to the general population? Uh, so I do have s some of that in the manuscript. I don't have it in my brain right now. <laughs> I don't have it in my brain right now. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to try to remember it, but uh, the AIM-1 findings were published in Nutrients. <laughs> yes. Did you look at weight or weight gain at all? Um, we did ask them, um, we, you know, in our question or surveys, um, we did ask them to report height and weight, um, but we didn't really do much with that because it was just self-reported. Um, you know, as we follow up on this and try to include um, more direct measures, we'll include better m measures to look at weight, but we didn't really get so far as to look at that for this exploratory, exploratory pilot study. Thank you, everyone. 
Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Elisa Stark, and I work at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to present one of my PhD students' um, findings. Orito Fear is my student. She is what we would call a devout vegan, and my collaborator, um, Dr. Yael Barzaev. And um, we wanted to look at barriers to counseling clients um, regarding legume consumption. Um, Hebrew University, three of the campuses are actually in Jerusalem, but the School of Nutri Nutritional Sciences is in Rehovot, which is the ag campus, and I think also in the US, nutrition um, grew out of the agricultural schools, if it's UC Davis or Cornell, and so the same thing happened in Israel. So we are located not in the medical center, we're actually in a town called Rehovot. And I also want to say that anyone is here as an SNEB member, if you're ever in Israel, give me an email, you're always welcome to come visit and get the personal tour. Um, this is preaching to the choir. We have consensus regarding the health and environmental benefits of legume consumption in this room for sure. And we also know that intake levels do not meet guidelines. I figured the audience is mostly American. I should give you some American data. This is Anne Haynes' 24-hour recall. Only about 20, 21% of Americans reported eating any legumes. We're not even talking about serving size um, in, the in the previous 24 hours. Um, so we compare this to what we got from our national survey. It's called Mabat. And we're doing a little bit better. 30% of the adult Israelis reported, and this is about 5,000 people. We have about between 9 and 10 million people living in Israel, beat South Dakota, <laughs> larger population. And we have about 400,000 vegans. So in the Middle East, we are the vegan capital of the Middle East, and about 4% of the population are vegans. And I would say of students studying nutrition, somewhere between 10 and 20% of my students are vegans. Um, I kind of expected that legume consumption would be higher. Because if you look at the ethnic foods, and this is just a sampling, hummus, you know, Middle Eastern, that's one of the things that's also eaten in the US, falafel, this is our street, street food. Um, majadra, if you're familiar with, um, like lentils and rice, very popular in our Arab-speaking population. Of the Israeli population, citizens, 20% are majority Muslim Arabs voting citizens, and they eat a lot of majadra, and they are included in the national survey in a representative um, amount. We have Ethiopian Jews that have come from Ethiopia, and they eat injera and wat, and if you know about the Ethiopian diet, wat is a big component of that is legumes. Um, the European Jews, if they don't cook on the Sabbath, they have this slow-cooked thing called chulent, which is some meat with a lot of legumes. So I was expecting when we looked at the national data to have a little bit more than 30%, but that's the data we have. Relatively recently, we had new Israeli guidelines um, for nutrition. The basis is obviously the Mediterranean dietary pattern. We are a Mediterranean country. Um, it is also based 
on sustainability. That's kind of new in all our new um, guidelines. And it's very interesting that something like 80%, and we do have good data for a country, 80% of fruits and vegetables consumed in Israel are grown locally. Um, so that's quite a bit. We have a um, year-round farming, better weather for growing than South Dakota, and a lot of um, greenhouses and irrigation, and so a lot of local farming. Um, and the recommendations include daily consumption of legumes. So this is our new food, ra uh, uh, food rainbow. It's probably the most complicated thing to teach people with. I'm, I have good dreams of the pyramid when there were food groups. Um, it's organized. This is the Ministry of Health. This is how they did it. I got to live with it and teach it and, and use it in nutrition education. So if you look at the green rainbow, this is recommended frequency of intake should be eaten several times a day. So that's fruits, vegetables, water, whole grains, all in this one green thing. I'm old, I, I'm missing the food groups. Um, the yellow portion is at least once a day. And if you look carefully, that's where our legumes come in. So you see the hummus and you see the beans. Um, very clearly, clear recommendations, people should step it up with the legumes. And this came out about a month ago. Um, more graphics to try to explain this wonderful rainbow. And the legumes do have a good place on the plate. Um, fruits, well, vegetables are half the plate, fruits a little bit less. Um, interesting graphic, we still have not translated it. I do a lot of nutrition education in the community. We're seeing, we'll see next semester how we get this um, into practical application in the field. So we asked ourselves, we, we, we see people need to eat more legumes. Would dietitians be good agents for change? Of course, that's what we do. We get people to eat kale and chia and all kinds of things that no one in their right mind would have eaten before. And legumes are already in our diet. So yes, this is a wonderful population to try to increase consumption um, on a national level. So our, our objectives were, and this was a, a, a larger study, I only am presenting a piece of it, but to identify barriers towards counseling clients on legume intake among Israeli dietitians. So it was the end of COVID. Um, we put ourselves out there on social media, and it was a convenient sample. 309 um, Israeli dietitians met um, inclusion qualifications. There were more, but some of them work in industry. We only wanted dietitians that were actually counseling or working in nutrition promotion. So um, if they were in pharmaceutical companies or whatever dietitians work um, for Abbott and all these companies, we did not, um, we wanted people with hands-on. Um, we used a liquid scale of one to five. We used 11 statements. Um, and of course, because it's academia, we have to have our theoretical models. And we use the model called Theoretical Domains Framework. Um, it's specifically for health providers. And the COMBI model, which looks at opportunity, motivation, and capability. And those three components are supposed to lead, if, if you have them, to behavior. And the behavior we're looking for is counseling of clients. So you'll see that. Um, our questions were based on this model. 
Who are our participants? Well, in nutrition worldwide, mostly women, and it does reflect um, the population of working dietitians in Israel, average age 41, average years of experience 13, and you have to have an undergraduate degree to get an RD, but about half had a master's degree or higher. We have a very highly educated group of dietitians um, in Israel. Employment from HMOs, hospitals, private clinics, um, and counseling in every area possible, from obesity, pregnancy, um, sports nutrition, and of course, the vegetarian and vegan diets um, also represent it. When we asked the dietitians, how much do you eat? Only 6% reported meeting the consumption, the recommendations, which is a servings a day. So we can all look at our own diets and see, oh, do I eat once a day legumes? I certainly don't. So I fall into the category between maybe two to four times a week. So 64% of the sample did report consuming at least two to three times a week. We thought that was still pretty good, but the rec recommendations are clear at least once a day. So what were their attitudes? Where did they think this was important? And what we see is when we ask them on a scale of one to five, is counseling patients about legume consumption important for me? 4.6 is pretty good to score. Um, counseling patients regarding legume consumption is effective. Also 4.17, pretty good. They think if they're gonna do the counseling, there's a good chance their clients will actually eat more legumes. Um, they asked if they thought their colleagues um, support legume consumption and um, I would like to include more legume consumption recommendations in my practice. And all pretty high scores, um, so it was important to this group. The resources and confidence, I am confident in my ability to counsel patients regarding legume consumption, 4.3, not bad. I have sufficient knowledge, 4.24, and my graduates, there are five schools of nutrition in Israel. My graduates, everyone knows how to use a pressure cooker, knows how to sprout legumes, and we cook lots and lots of legumes. So I don't know what percentage of the, the population are my graduates, but I'm sure that they have knowledge about legumes. Um, and that's, they also reported that. I have enough time to counsel. Now, I assume that was gonna be the biggest barrier. We have socialized, two minutes, socialized medicine, and you have to see a client every 10 minutes. So there should be a time barrier, but they, did, they said three. That is a factor, but the biggest barrier was adequate didactic resources. Sustainability, good scores that are diet impacts environment, less good scores on thinking that dietitians' responsibility is to promote sustainable diets. So if we go back to our framework, opportunity, time seemed to be sufficient, motivation, they believe they could increase consumption, capabilities, they have the knowledge and understanding. And what the problem is when we looked at the behavior, about half of the dietitians currently recommend legumes to most of their clients. And that's not quite good enough. We do have study limitations, you know, with the selection bias. Those that were more interested in legumes probably clicked on the link. Um, but that would only mean that we overestimate because we have a legume-aware population. And even the legume-aware population 
isn't quite doing enough. So clearly, um, we need to do more. Um, so our conclusions were that despite clear guidelines, et cetera, we need to step it up with our nutritionists. So the biggest barrier was lack of didactic resource, resources. So the next steps, obviously this is a PhD student. There's a picture of her, Orit. She went and her intervention is underway at this moment. Um, an intervention for dietitians to help them do more counseling. And she has developed, and I'm going to give her all the credit for this beautiful um, pamphlet about increasing legume consumption. And one of the beautiful things that she did, of course, I'm always in the background, but you've got to give credit to the student who is actually doing the work. Um, partners, you've got to bring everyone to the table. So on this brochure, you will see Hebrew University, of course, but also the Israeli Dietetics Association, the Israeli Ministry of Health, Physi um, Physicians Association for Nutrition. So she really got on board. People always confuse grains and legumes. She's made it very clear. You don't have to know a word of Hebrew to understand half this brochure. I did a little translating there, but you get the message. And um, um, nutritional information, pictures, recipes, tips for preventing flatulence, all in this two-sided brochure. And what she did actually is got the Ministry of Health to agree to print 100,000 copies of this pamphlet. I think 100 might be 10,000. I think it's 100,000. So again, bringing resources to the table because the university isn't so, you know, we need special money to do nutrition promotion in the community. So she went and found the right partners. Um, and I'm very proud of her work. And this is just a piece. Um, so that's what we're doing. And I think our dietitians are on board. They just need a little push. So the intervention should hopefully raise awareness and get more dietitians to work on recommending legumes to most of their um, clients. So that's it. Thank you. If there are any questions now, do I have time? I wasn't too long, right? I was okay. We have enough time? Yes, we have two minutes. Okay. Sure. So with the training on the next step, is there any discussion of doing like in-person training? It's all online. And maybe one other question. Do you have any sense of why legume consumption is so much not as high as you thought it would be? I think the, the standard reasons, you know, it takes a long time to prepare. Um, even though we have another section was how, what, you, what you think your clients think about legumes, I didn't present that. Um, and actually that it causes flatulence was not one of the high-rated things. Um, but a lot of not knowing how to prepare recipes. Um, younger generation doesn't cook so much, to be honest, that's everywhere. Um, but we'll see, and I think it's an international problem, except maybe India where they eat a lot of legumes. Even I was just in Uganda, you would think, an African country, almost no legume can come. They eat a lot of grains. They don't eat a lot of fruits or vegetables or legumes. So it's one of these problems. It's not just in America. We all are trying to um, promote the same kind of things, less ultra-processed. It doesn't matter where you live in the world, I think. Um, it's the same issues, and that's why this conference is relevant to all of us, no matter where we are. 
Any other questions? Okay, so thank you very much, and we'll pass on the microphone. <laughs> Except I don't know how to get to your... I'll see what I can do. I might adjust this as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Wonderful transition. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, great to be here. Uh, my name is Nick. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Vermont. Um, and so this presentation today is part of my dissertation research. Um, and I will define my terms in just a moment, but I'd like to do just a quick poll of the room here uh, to see how many of you are familiar with my two terms, which I'll be talking about today. So we just ended uh, hearing a little bit about ultra-processed foods. So I'm going to ask you to just raise your hand if you've heard of the term ultra-processed food and you think you have a pretty decent understanding understanding of what that term means. And I'm not going to ask you what it means, but let me just uh, get a proportion here. So we've got uh, uh, maybe 80% or so. Great. Okay, let's go with my second term here of clean eating, another term that it gets thrown around a lot. It uh, doesn't really have a, a clear definition, so that's okay, but I'm just curious how many of you have maybe heard of this term before and again have some sense of what it implies. Okay, about the same. Interesting. About 60 to 80%. Great. Um, so I'll just dive right in in the interest of time here. Um, I will be telling you a little bit about those, those terms in just a moment. Um, but also, um, uh, this is an image from an article last year in the American Journal of Public Health by uh, one of my uh, heroes, or sheroes, Marion Nessel, who I actually got to meet at an SNEB conference in 2005. It was actually my first time coming to SNEB. Uh, she gave a presentation about the new My uh, Pyramid, um, and I got, actually got to talk with her. She had just been in um, uh, one of those documentaries, I can't remember which one it was, and so we got to like talk about that. Um, so that was great. Uh, but she has actually recently, uh, this paper that she published in American Journal of Public Health is actually calling for some type of a label on ultra-processed foods, whether it's a front-of-package warning label, whether it's something that maybe gets incorporated into the nutrition uh, facts panel. Um, and so uh, my interest is in food labeling. Uh, that's kind of the topic of my uh, dissertation research um, at the University of Vermont. Um, and so that's what we'll be talking a little bit about today. I'll talk a little bit about um, uh, some cross-sectional uh, survey data that we collected last year. And so, um, yeah, so what are ultra-processed foods? Well, we all know that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Um, and so an apple uh, would be classified as a group one food. Um, this NOVA food classification uh, is the uh, most frequently used uh, way to identify ultra-processed foods. Uh, so group one foods would be an apple, an unprocessed or a minimally processed food. Um, of course, we can uh, make apple juice um, out of an apple. Uh, that would be considered a group two a processed culinary ingredient. Um, let's see here, what can we do? Group three here, maybe we can make a hard cider uh, from those apples. We might have to add a little sugar, uh, some yeast, and then ferment that to make a group three food. Um, for group four, we can have a lot of fun here. Uh, we can maybe make an apple jelly-filled donut um, as, a, as an ultra-processed food there. So all those foods contain apples, but obviously in kind of like different levels, a different amount of the whole intact apple uh, in each of those different uh, types of foods. So some facts about ultra-processed food. Um, it's estimated that maybe 70% of all 
all foods in the average U.S. supermarket are classified as group four um, ultra-processed foods. So maybe not surprisingly, uh, they make up over half of the calories that are consumed um, in the U.S. Um, and as I just mentioned, um, ultra-processed can be differentiated from other processed foods um, by the inclusion of industrial ingredients that would not be in your home kitchen, so high fructose corn syrup or aspartame or methyl cellulose or, you know, take your pick of all the different industrial thickeners and sweeteners and flavor enhancers uh, that we find in foods, um, and they typically have very little whole intact food. Um, there's been a growing body of epidemiological research that has associated consumption of ultra-processed foods with a range of diet-related diseases, um, and so now there's uh, even systematic reviews of those um, correlational studies. Um, a limitation is there's really not much experimental evidence here. Uh, most of the research is, is associations, kind of correlations. Um, um, but there have, as I mentioned, there have been some discussions, not just of labels, um, but the Dietary Guidelines uh, Scientific Committee is currently reviewing the evidence on ultra-processed foods in consideration of whether or not to add that to the updated uh, dietary guidelines. So it's possible that we're going to all be hearing a lot more about ultra-processed foods uh, in the coming years. Um, however, very little is known about uh, consumers' perception of ultra-processed foods, and uh, so that's one of the contribu uh, contributions uh, to the literature of this study here. Uh, so the other topic I'm talking about today is clean eating. Um, so uh, believe it or not, clean eating, despite not being clearly defined, uh, is the most popular diet uh, in the U.S., um, and it has been for the last maybe three to four years, at least according to the IFIC. They do an annual survey. Um, so the literature, I think the first reference I've seen with clean eating or clean labeling was around 2017. Um, so some descriptions in the literature are an approach to healthy eating which promotes the exclusion of processed foods. Sounds a little bit like that NOVA scale I just talked about. Um, eating patterns that emphasize whole foods that are non-processed. Again, emphasizing group one, group two foods. Um, and clean label food is often perceived as more natural, healthy, and familiar, at least to consumers. Now, this uh, trend has also been critiqued uh, quite a bit. Um, some are concerned that this could potentially be too restrictive of an eating pattern, um, potentially linked to um, disordered eating, um, and some have suggested it might even be a potential sign of orthorexia, which is an unhealthy um, obsession or preoccupation with food. So, um, uh, I'm going to try to see if these two concepts are related to each other. Um, so, in this study, uh, we examined the health-related criteria that consumers or food citizens uh, prioritize when selecting foods in the marketplace, and then examine whether perceptions of ultra-processed foods are associated with these criteria. So, first, I'm going to see what proportion of consumers have heard of the term ultra-processed food. We'll also ask if you've heard of it, are you concerned about processing? Have you made changes in your behaviors to reduce your consumption of uh, ultra-processed foods? Uh, so that's our first kind of uh, research question. So here in this room, again, about 80% of us had heard of ultra-processed food. What percent do you think of consumers have heard of ultra-processed food? You'll find out in just a minute. Um, then we're going to ask, uh, we're going to find out to what degree do people prioritize non-nutrient or clean labeling attributes when evaluating a food's healthfulness relative to nutrient criteria. So this image here is basically, do people prioritize the blue stuff, like sugar, fat, and sodium, or do people prioritize the green stuff, like minimally processed, familiar ingredients, uh, natural farming practices, maybe. And then uh, my third question is, can we predict uh, number two from number one? 
Uh, so just quickly, uh, we did a, this was an online survey. Uh, the Vermonter Poll is an annual uh, survey of the adults living in Vermont. It is a non-probability uh, convenience sample. Um, it is typically skewed towards older and higher income uh, respondents. Um, so here we go. Uh, 45% uh, of respondents have never heard of the term ultra-processed, so that's about 50% almost. And again, this data was from, I think, March or April of last year. There has been quite a bit of media coverage since then. Um, the smallest number of respondents, 4.5%, uh, have heard of ultra-processed and were not concerned with the level of processing in the food that they buy. 13% have heard of ultra-processed and were concerned with the level of processing and the foods that they eat, but they have not made any behavior or purchasing changes yet. Uh, the 31% uh, have heard of ultra-processed, are concerned about food processing, and say they have actually made changes in their purchasing habits. Um, and so that's the group I'm kind of most interested in, that green group there. Um, and my hypothesis is that that group of people would likely be more likely to uh, practice these types of clean eating uh, types of behaviors. Uh, so that previous question, um, uh, here it is, basically there, weren't, there wasn't too much of a, an effect of some of the different demographics that we looked at. Um, there was a little bit of an effect of females uh, be, uh, being more likely to uh, be concerned uh, compared to males, um, and, but there was no effect of uh, some of these other demographics. Um, and then you see that the, the clean eating score was significantly different between these groups, and so I'll define uh, how I came up with that. So we gave people a choice experiment where we gave them seven different uh, criteria or attributes and said, when you're in the grocery store making decisions about foods that you purchase for yourself and your family, uh, which criteria do you prioritize? And we made them pick three of the seven. I actually learned a little bit for the previous year, I didn't do it that way and everything was important to everyone. Um, and so when we did it the, the second year, we had people prioritize uh, by selecting three of those um, seven attributes. So as you can see, added sugar was the uh, top criteria, which is great. People are looking at um, added sugars on the nut nutrition label. Um, and then we see that those green attributes are equally as important um, as fat, as sodium, and as food groups. So it kind of suggests that people are looking at ingredients, uh, they're considering processing pretty much just as much as they're considering uh, some of these other nutrients. So I then turned this into an index. So how many green choices did each participant select? So some people selected zero green uh, attributes. They would have selected all uh, nutrient criteria. So 20% uh, selected all nutrient criteria. Uh, you can see most people selected at least one or two of our clean attributes, and then some selected all three of the, uh, the clean attributes. And so basically the scale is, you know, the higher you are on this index, Index, the more likely you are to practice kind of um, clean eating types of behaviors. And we found that this scale um, was, in fact, predicted by that question. Um, so those who were in that UPF4 group, uh, that was the group that said they had um, made changes to reduce their consumption. Uh, that was actually the variable that was most uh, strongly uh, associated with our clean eating index. Um, and so, for example, <clears throat> When compared to those who had never heard of ultra-processed food, this group, they selected at least one more of those clean eating attributes in that choice experiment. Also, there was some effect of, of younger um, respondents having a higher score on this index, and there was also um, females were more likely than males. 
to have a, a higher score. And so to summarize, um, about half of respondents had previously heard of the term ultra-processed food, and the majority of those who had heard of ultra-processed food were uh, concerned with the level of processing and the foods that they eat. Um, nearly a third of respondents uh, told us that they were actually actively making changes to reduce their consumption of ultra-processed food, um, and we found that those respondents, they were more likely to prioritize those clean eating attributes. Uh, so you think about it, it kind of makes sense. They're looking for familiar ingredients. Uh, they're looking for kind of minimal levels of processing. Um, so it sounds like they have heard of ultra-processed foods, and they, um, the behaviors that they're using in the marketplace um, are kind of related to that concept. And then ultimately, we found that females um, and younger, as I just mentioned, um, aged respondents uh, had higher scores on that clean eating uh, um, index, um, but income, education, uh, race, and ethnicity were not associated um, with that index. And so in terms of like the implications of this work, I think this kind of contributes maybe some new insights to both the clean labeling literature um, and literature on ultra-processed foods. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, the clean eating, uh, you know, for maybe for good reason, it's been criticized and critiqued uh, in the nutrition literature. Um, however, you know, if, if this population is attempting to avoid ultra-processed foods, um, you know, it's possible that as we learn more about this concept and um, ultra-processing, if it makes its way into the dietary guidelines, you know, this could be something that we could potentially harness um, in future uh, um, interventions. Um, and then when we come to uh, ultra-processed foods, again, there's this discussion by Mary Nessel of others uh, and others to kind of potentially think about some type of a label, whether it's a warning or just some information on labels. Um, related to um, uh, ultra-processing, I think that this, our, our findings suggest that that would be meaningful information to the public. Um, it is aligned with the criteria that people are currently using in the marketplace to make decisions um, about food. Um, and it could potentially reduce the reliance on um, kind of marketing statements like natural, because if a product is labeled as ultra-processed, well, hopefully it wouldn't be allowed to label as natural or some other type of um, uh, uh, marketing statement. So, um, so ultimately, uh, the public is concerned with high levels of processing in the foods that they eat, um, and people also consider processing as well as some other uh, non-nutrient criteria when they're making uh, decisions in the marketplace. And so ultimately, you know, again, as we hear more about ultra-processed foods um, and we, uh, you know, consider whether that's relevant concept for the dietary guidelines and food labels, um, it's important to know, you know, again, if you're trying to give new information to the public, um, it's important to understand how the public already perceives that topic, um, so hopefully this can contribute to that conversation. So, thanks a lot. Happy to take a question or two. Um, I think diet trends maybe I think maybe 
maybe females maybe are more of the um, what's it called early adopters maybe in general maybe have a um, maybe have more of an interest in uh, nutrition topics popular nutrition topics in general um, but that's just that's just the um, um, and then in terms of age um, yeah I actually have no idea uh, what do you think Yeah, so popular diets. There's a lot. There's a lot of different, you know, popular diets out there. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and uh, yeah. There's one study that does show that you know ultra processing can increase the amount of calories that you consume. Um, but again, there's only been one study. It kind of needs to be replicated. So, is there another question? Yeah. Thank you for, that, for sharing that, yeah. Do you have another question or? Yeah, um, you mentioned that you changed like the way you had the seven mm -hmm. items from when you had three X. So I'm wondering, was this the first time you've used like sustainable using index or have you used that in your prior work and do you have plans to continue using that or not? That's a good question. And so th this has kind of built over the years. Uh, we started, we were ju we just asked people kind of like, yes or no, do you use different types of food labels in the marketplace? Um, and this one was uh, very different from how we'd asked it in, in, the, in previous years. Um, so uh, this was the first year we actually asked both of these questions at the same time. Um, and I'm actually, I just have to acknowledge my advisor, uh, uh, Jane Kolodinsky, because she was the one who actually put the question on ultra-processed foods on the survey, and I'm really grateful for her doing that. Um, so I was able to uh, inclu include that in, the, in this analysis. So, yeah. yeah. Two different, yeah, very two different answers, yeah. Uh, what do I predict will happen? I don't think it's gonna make it into the 2025 dietary guidelines. Um, what do I hope will happen? I hope it will make it into the 2025 dietary guidelines. Because as we know, the, gui the guidelines really inform uh, food labels. There was someone here earlier today talking about the updated healthy label, um, and it's entirely based on the dietary guidelines for Americans. So yes, my hope is if we can get this concept into the dietary guidelines, that will then flow out into food labels, uh, into all the work that, that we do. Um, and maybe if we can't get a label, maybe we could at least ultra-processed foods we could restrict them from making some of those positive marketing statements like healthy and natural. So in theory, if that healthy label, if they, they could actually have a restriction on ultra-processed foods, I think that would be great that you, could only, that you couldn't put that claim on an ultra-processed foods. But again, your first question, what do you, I think will happen? I don't think it will be that. So thanks. Thank you. Hey, there you go. Yeah. Um, how do I factor that in? Um, uh, no, that's you're absolutely right. Um, the healthiest foods don't have labels. You know, we like to shop around the edge of uh, edge of a store. You know, foods that don't have labels. Um, 
in reality, you know, from talking to people, um, just you know, seeing the way people are eating and shopping and cooking and not cooking these days, um, it seems that, um, you know, it, it, in some ways it doesn't seem realistic sometimes to kind of push people to only eat basic, whole, intact foods. Um, it seems like for some people they don't have the time, they don't have, you know, the other you know, resources to make that happen. Um, but you're absolutely right that this concept is really only relevant for things that are in boxes. No, that's actually what this kind of analysis is kind of doing because, again, we're kind of, in a way, kind of validating that response by showing that those people were more likely to look at ingredients and consider processing. Um, but no, we didn't. We didn't ask them like what they thought it meant. That's good. That's a good limitation. Yeah. Yeah. One more, or maybe two more. Yeah. Um, Yeah, lots of good points there, um, and, and you're absolutely right about the potential that this negative label, you know, could have. Um, but you know, at least it would be competing with so many. There's so many positive labels, but there's really no negative, you know, labels that we we have. So that's a good point. We need to wrap it up. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thank you all for coming. This concludes our session.